Got to pray for Psalm 2. Well, I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis as we continue on in the book of Genesis. We have been seeing how uh, God obviously brought Joseph to Egypt. And then we saw also how uh, even though he was brought as a slave, the Lord elevated him. Time and again, he watched over him. And now he has made him second in all of Egypt. Only Pharaoh has more authority. And his brothers have come seeking grain. They do not yet know that Joseph is, in fact, or the man who they have been talking to as the prime minister of Egypt is, in fact, Joseph. He is alien to them, not speaking uh, in the Hebrew tongue they spoke. And uh, he looks very different from the 17-year-old whom they sold into slavery. But uh, the greatest changes are not in Joseph. As we shall see, the greatest changes are actually in his brothers and in his family. But let us uh, go and seek the face of the Lord and ask for his help as we uh, approach the word of God. God, our Father, Lord, we are so thankful for what we just sang about the amazing love that you have shown to your people. You are the one who gave us, as Charles Wesley uh, professed in in his hymn, you are the one whose eye diffused a quickening Ray, Lord, it was not we who saved ourselves, but you who freed us from our bondage to sin and death. You are the one, O Lord, who put your spirit in our hearts, and you are the only one who can help us to understand your word. I pray this day you would do just that. Help us to understand this and apply it in our own lives. We know that the truths here are eternal, and they are certainly for us. I pray that you would help me to preach aright. I need, O Lord, to be able to divide this word and apply it to your people. I can reach their ears, perhaps, Lord, but I know only you can reach their hearts. And I pray, O Lord, and beg you that you would do so. O Lord, let us all now grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. Genesis chapter 4. T4. (laughs) 44. Uh, And I'll be reading verses 1 through 17. I do remind you, this is the word of the Lord. And he, that is Joseph, of course, commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also, put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, The men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they had gone out of the city and they were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. So he overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. And he said, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless." Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched. 
He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? How shall we speak, or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's interesting, at least it's interesting to me, I hope it's interesting to you too throughout your life, your Christian life. It's interesting how your perspective on a biblical text that you're familiar with can change as you get older and change as you read it more and more. I have to tell you, this is one of those sections of scripture where my perspective on the text has changed dramatically since the first time I read it. The first time I read it, uh, in Genesis, I remember, I, I really, I just didn't understand what was going on. Why was this necessary? Why is Joseph being so mean? Why is he torturing his brothers? It just, it didn't seem right to me. It seemed like the first time they came, he should have just said, hey guys, you're not going to believe this, but it's your butt Joseph. Remember me, your brother? And then they all went, wow, that's amazing. And, and happy families from that point onwards. I didn't understand at the time why he took them through this torturous path. But now years later, I actually see the wisdom in the methodology that Joseph implied. And certainly I see the immense, the divine wisdom that God showed in doing it this way. And I hope that as we go through this section, you'll begin to see that as well. Well, let's start, with the, uh, let's start with the end of the last chapter, shall we? You remember Joseph had, had spread out this banquet for his brothers. He seated them in their age order, which had surprised them. He knew how old they were, who was first born, who was last born. He had given an extra portion, of course, to Benjamin. And we read at the very end of chapter 43, So they drank and were merry with him. They had a grand old time. Uh, a minor question, uh, one that uh, I don't think most people consider, because it's not that important, but it's, it's curious nonetheless, is what were they drinking? They drank and were merry with him. Um, and we always tend to think, most people immediately, their mind, you know, they, they don't go to, uh, well, Sundrop or Dr. Pepper or anything like that. They, they immediately think, wine that makes glad the heart of man, to quote Psalm 104. But interestingly enough, the Egyptians were partial to beer, and at this point in time, uh, the famine was so sharp that grapes were probably in short supply as it was. So a drink like beer made with grain would have been far more likely. So they were probably sudsing it up uh, at that point in time. But nonetheless, they drank and they were merry. Uh, they would have seen the large silver goblet, and that's why this is important, that the Egyptian prime minister seated at the table by himself was drinking from, but they probably would not have thought much of it other than to say the equivalent or uh, whatever the, uh, the Egyptian for cheers was once in a while and, and so on. 
But as soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. And how pleased. I mean, think about it. How pleased they must have been at this point. How satisfied. We got the grain. We got Simeon. We are returning to our father with his beloved Benjamin. And on top of that, we have a story about how we, in the middle of a worldwide famine, we feasted with the second most important man in Egypt. We are Gangnam style, honestly, right here. Or at least at that point, they were Nile style. Um, we, We have everything we want. And it's all going the way we wanted. So much for our fathers. Everything is against me. Everything is for us right now. And how quickly that all changed. They're riding out there with their loaded down donkeys, probably not setting exactly a a fast pace. And then they see this cloud of dust rising behind them on the road. Probably several chariots. I seriously doubt that the, uh, the king's, uh, or rather not the king, the prime minister's steward came by himself. And suddenly these heavily laden donkeys and the brothers are overtaken by the retinue from Joseph's household. And their hearts must have sank at that point in time. Little did they know that the Egyptian tyrant had put his cup into their bag. Now, the... Stuart accuses them of having stolen, but they're doubly accused. First, he accuses them, doesn't he, of repaying evil for good. Now, that is a foul thing, obviously. When somebody does something nice to us, if, for instance, they host us in their their home, they, they spread a feast before us. For us to say nasty things to them afterwards, to, uh, to, be, um, to be unkind, to talk badly about the food and so on, or to, to do nasty things to them, or to steal the silverware, or in this case the cup, that would be an evil thing. But he says it's doubly evil because this cup was not just any cup in the household. It's not that they stole, stole you know, some random silver spoon. They stole the master's favorite cup, the one not only that he drank his beer from, but the one that he used for divination. And therefore, it was doubly precious to him. It had multiple roles within his household. Now, one of the things that we have to do, I mean, it's before us and we have to deal with it. What do we do with this claim that Joseph makes to be a diviner, someone who practiced divination, someone who used methodologies Uh, that, I mean, let's face it, modern occultists use today in order to foretell the future. Well, one track that we could take is we could say that this was something he was putting on, that he was pretending, that he had to come up with an explanation, for instance, for how he knew the order of the brothers, how he knew the birth order. So uh, we could say that he was uh, using this as a cover for his inside knowledge of his family and in order to... uh, to impress them and also to let them know how he knew that they had the cup with them and and so on. 
the Egyptians, of course, at this time dabbled heavily in the occult. Uh, James and Fawcett Brown note uh, divination by cups to ascertain the course of futurity. There's a wonderful phrase. The course of futurity was one of the prevalent superstitions of ancient Egypt, as it is of Eastern countries still. It is not likely that Joseph, a pious believer in the true God, would have addicted himself to this superstitious practice, but he might have availed himself of that popular notion to carry out the successful execution of his stratagem for the last decisive trial of his brethren. So JFB are very sympathetic to Joseph, and they, they say, you know, he was probably, this is all just a, uh, a con. Uh, that was used in order to test his brothers. Uh, the question still comes up, did he actually do this? Was he commonly gazing into his cup like Galadriel's silver basin in the Fellowship of the Rings, hoping to see the future? We don't know. That's, that's what it comes down to. And I tend to believe not, though. I do. I want to give Joseph the judgment of charity in this. As we've already established, uh, God revealed the future to him, but through dreams, God spoke to him when he needed to know things. But we also know this, it is often the case that God's people want to know more than they are immediately given. We have an entire charismatic movement that uh, is partially driven by the idea of wanting to know the secret things of God all the time, wanting to pry into the mysteries of providence and to have more information than we are given immediately within scripture. It's just something that afflicts God's people. They want to answer the questions or they want God-given answers to questions that they aren't being given the answers to. And usually we need to remember this, if we're not given the answer to a question, why is that? The answer is because we don't need it. It is not something that the Lord wants to reveal to us. And in fact, if we did know the answer, it is probably something that would do us no good. For instance, imagine how many of us would be absolutely broken if we knew the time and the date and the happenstance of our death. How that would change everything that we did from here on, and for some, not for good. It would be a crippling thing for many people. There are some answers that we just do not need. But it is possible that he did look into these things. So like Saul with the Witch of Endor, uh, he is using, uh, and he could have been using an occultic methodology to pry into these things. I would hope not. Um, but Joseph is not perfect. And that's something that we need to remember as well. He is not the hero of the Bible. He's definitely the best of the brothers, but he is not the hero of the Bible. Christ is the hero of the Bible throughout. So uh, as um, Derek Kidner puts it, unless this was part of his pose, Joseph here took his coloring from Egypt and not necessarily in a good way. But in the matter of the cup also, there is uh, I think an irony that would not have been lost on the brothers. It's a silver cup. And you remember the brothers had sold their brother Joseph into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. And now there is a silver object that is their undoing and which will bring them into slavery as they think, or at the very least Benjamin is being brought into slavery. But when initially the steward comes up and accuses of them, uh, them of this, they are absolutely certain that they have nothing to fear. They haven't got the cup, they're innocent. I have to tell you, given what had happened with the money before, I might not have been quite as certain. 
I don't think it's in my bag. Ah, you know, that kind of thing. They point out, though, rightly so, that if they were thieves, why then would they have brought back the money that they found in their sacks in the first place and then steal a cup from this man? It would make no sense. And they're so incensed, they're so determined about this, they say, kill the person who stole this cup and we'll all be your slaves. They don't expect that the cup is going to be found in anybody's bag. And the steward, of course, who knows exactly what's up because he put the, the, the cup there, says, let it be as you say. But he omits the killing part happily. He says instead, the person who stole the cup will become a slave. And so they're eager to open their bags. They take them down from the donkeys. They open them up. And one after another, you must have seen, there was this triumphant look. Look, it's just grain. Just grain like I told you. Just grain again. Oh, look, more grain. Eleven times, grain, grain, grain. Just grain. Okay, grain. And then they're finally, they're sitting there like this, and then they get to Benjamin, and it's like, oh, is that a silver? There must have been an anime face at some point. You know, at least one of them might have had that look, because we know immediately, as soon as they saw it, they tore their clothes. Ah! How is this happening? They know that they're, they're done for. Uh, and what makes it even worse is that this is the worst sack to find it in from their perspective. Benjamin's sack. Judah, you remember, he, he had promised his father he himself would be his surety. In other words, go ahead and, and kill me if, if, if Benjamin doesn't come back. And they knew that Benjamin was father's favorite. So they cry out in anguish. They tear their clothes. But note this. I want you to see this. And, and, and we're beginning to see the dramatic changes that have happened within this group of men. They don't leave Benjamin to his fate. They sold Joseph, you remember, into slavery. Bye-bye, clean hands. Let's go back and lie to the old man. But they're not going to do that. They could have rode away at that point in time. They don't. They, they accompanied them back to the household. They all returned to the city. None of them at this point can bear the idea of facing Israel, that is Jacob, without Benjamin. And their guilt is already eating them alive. This guilt that they pressed down has now bubbled to the top. And they can't handle it. Now... We need to ask another question at this point. Uh, it's more than just a curiosity. Did they suspect that they had been framed? Well, the answer is probably. But here's the interesting thing. At this point, they had probably come to the conclusion, in fact, from what we read here and what we're going to read in a little while, they had come to, definitely come to the conclusion that God was judging them for what they had done to Joseph. Beware, as numbers 34 tells us, your sins will find you out. They believed that strongly, that although they may have gotten away with it, and they didn't really get away with it, obviously, they knew that God knew what they had done, and worse, the damage that it had done in their family, and in breaking the heart of their father was immense, and so on, and having to walk around with a lie in your heart, an enormous lie, involving your father, uh, involving your, your brother's being sold into slavery, potentially dead because of what you did. That was a heavy weight they'd been walking around with for, for years and years and years. But they knew this. 
If they were guiltless of this particular crime regarding the cup, they were certainly guilty of other crimes, and in particular this crime concerning Joseph. And so they saw it as God's justice catching up with them at this point in time. God, they say, has found out the iniquity of your servant. And I don't think that they were referring there to the cup incident. They were referring to what had been done before. But more than that, the iniquity of your servants. In other words, God has found out the sinfulness of the things that we've been up to. Pretty sure at this point, they're not even just thinking about Joseph. That was the biggest crime, certainly. But all the other things that they had done. Now they see that justice is catching up with them. Now they will become slaves in Egypt themselves. And Judah, the man who had dabbled in Canaanite religion, had attempted to defraud his daughter-in-law, Tamar. He, who had argued that they should sell Joseph into slavery, he is the one who speaks for them, admitting their iniquity fully. And what repentance we are seeing here. What a changed heart. Repentance, not only that, it's, it's one thing to say, I repent of my sins. It's another thing entirely to put action behind it. And they do. They turn around and they go back. Repentance is a turning from our sin and going in the opposite direction. And they do exactly that. Joseph's testing, therefore, and more importantly, God's testing is almost complete. There is just one more touch. And we'll see that coming a little later on in this particular chapter. But after they have made their confession, they've said, okay, we'll all be your slaves together. We can't go back. It's at this point that Joseph confounds them by saying that he doesn't want them all as slaves. Just the young man, Benjamin, in whose sack the cup was found. What will they do now? Once again, he said, you can go. I'm not holding you. Just, just him. Just him. But this is the final part of the test. Will they be willing to, even though they've come all the way back, will they now be willing to go back to their father? Well, uh, there is, and I want to make a direct application from all of this to us. Often in our lives, we will go through a period where it just seems like one test, and often we fail, one test after another, after another, after another. And our heart screams out, that's enough. I've had enough. No more testing, God. Now it's time for the, the good things. I feel sorry. I'm feeling sorry right now. There's grief in my heart. You're breaking me. I don't want any more. We cry out against God's testing in those moments. And we say, I, I can't endure anymore. Stop. God knows what he's doing, though. Have you ever thought about this? Your entire life is one long period here on earth of probation. We would live so differently, wouldn't we? I mean, if you know somebody's testing you, your entire attitude towards what's going on changes. For instance, in the dating process, you know you're being tested, right? <laughs> you know, you're, on, you're on trial. It's a period of probation. And so unfortunately, many of us our best behavior in our entire lives was during that period of time. We were the most gallant. We were the most well-spoken. We were the most generous. We were the best dressed. And we certainly smelled better than we ever have in our entire lives during that period of time. 
But if we Christians considered our lives as a constant period of, of testing, trial, probation, and growth, because the objective of a test is not merely, of course, to ascertain where, what we know about a, a subject or where we are, but to cause us to grow. As we realize, for instance, we fail a test, what are we supposed to do? I was, I was thankful for, for Chuck Williams. I, I must add, uh, at, uh, there were several points during the summer when I went, oh, I'm from New Jersey too, hey, you know, anyway. But, um, he mentioned how he hadn't failed Greek, but yet he went back and did it again because the testing revealed his deficiency in Greek. And he was so determined to really know God's word that he went back and, and did that again. That should be our response, shouldn't it, to moral testing, especially when we fail? That it should be our desire to go back and, and do a better job even when we are being tested in that? The life of David, have you considered this? We're going through, um, we're at the end of the life of David uh, in the mornings as we're in First Kings. But he's tested up to the very end. David, you made a vow, will you keep it? When it's dangerous? When everything depends upon it? He's tested to the very end of his life. And he passes that final test, which is a wonderful thing. You and I will be tested by God and tried because what is, his, what is he doing? God is the refiner, brothers and sisters. Now, thankfully, the test for our salvation ultimately is pass-fail. Let's face it. It depends and it hinges entirely on do you know Jesus Christ? But the testing that's involved in being conformed to his image, the testing of our sanctification by which God refines us and takes off the dross. It used to be said that the refiner knew that the metal was pure when he could see his image in it reflected perfectly as in a mirror. That's the process he's going through. He's refining, he's testing, but that involves heat and it involves things that we don't necessarily like. What is he doing, though? Through all of these things with the brothers, he is humbling them and bringing them to repentance, breaking them down. If you come to a structure, let's say a contractor is contracted to improve a, a house, okay? There's a family that says that they want a stable, durable, good-looking house that'll that'll go on, that's on a good foundation. We learned about the importance of good foundations this morning as well. And the contractor goes to it, and he looks at this thing. He realizes the foundation is terrible, and the house itself is tottering. It's dangerous and so on. I mean, he could slap paint on it, maybe uh, make it a little more solid here and there, and then leave it. But often it's the case that he has to take the entire structure down and rebuild in order for them to have the kind of house that they want. And that often is what God has to do with us. He has to break us down before he can build us up. He has to remove all of the parts that are not on the right foundation, that are rotten, that will not endure, that will not pass the test of time. And so what happens with the brothers is that they're not broken yet. Not broken enough, at least, to go on. And the Lord is still doing his work. And it may be the case, as you're crying out and saying, no more, that's enough, that you're not broken yet. That you have not really gone through the humbling 
that needs to occur before you are going to be conformed to the image of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Now follow me here when I try to explain to you and flesh that out and, and, and show it to you from Scripture. Humbling had occurred in their life prior to this season of testing. I want to give you an example of that. Judah, remember, was humbled in the Tamar incident. She had taken his staff and his seal, and after he had slept with her pretending, you know, she'd been pretending that she was a prostitute. Notice how deception keeps coming up also in, in the lives of uh, Jacob and his son. So she'd taken those elements, and then uh, at that moment when he's filled with self-righteous indignation, she had presented them to him. The man to whom these belong, he's the father. And he immediately recognized, oh, she's more righteous than me. That didn't really break him, did it? Not entirely. He's not broken enough, for instance, to go and say, Dad, I need to confess something to you. And I know it's going to break your heart, but it's awful, and it can't be between us any longer. He didn't go back and say, your son is still alive. There has to be, though, a continuing process in his life. Now, I remember many years ago, I was given a book on child uh, raising, and the author, um, it was very much an outward in process, okay? It was conformed their, their behavior. One of the points that the, the author made was he said, when it came to spanking children, spank until they're sweet. And I thought to myself, wow, that sounds very wise. We, we keep spanking the child until they're no longer defiant and so on. But as I thought about it more and more and more, it suddenly occurred to me that without the working of the Holy Spirit following that methodology, all you get is a child who is cowed or rebellious or cagey. He just learns to be wiser or more, not wiser, more shifty when it comes to his, his sinning. I'm not going to get caught like that again. What do we need? We don't just need the spanking. Now, the spanking is necessary. The chastening of the Lord is necessary. But we need the inner working of the Holy Spirit and a realization that a loving God is at work in us to change us. And that is what's happening with the brothers. Notice, they don't simply see this as bad luck or just uh, an unfortunate series of events or something like that. What they see happening is God at work. What is God doing? God is chastening us. And so they don't ditch Benjamin. They don't further break their father's heart. And they see that while they may not have stolen the cup, they sold their own brother into slavery. And now they actually begin, also note this, the positive change. And this is vitally important because it's what shows real repentance is occurring in their hearts. Now they love one another. Now they confess their sins. Now they, more importantly, even than confessing your sins, because I have met people who will confess their sins just to get it off their, their, their conscience, but they don't own their sins. When you come back and, and, and you're talking about it, you're like, they, they, you'll watch them doing this, this weird process of retreating from the sin, so it's kind of more of a, okay, it's gone. And then you're like, well, let's talk about when you did that. Well, you understand there were certain circumstances that came into play. And I'm not really to blame for this. There was this and that and that other thing. And this happened and then that happened. And so you see, oh, I did it, but it's not really my fault. That's not owning your sin. That's not confessing your sin. They're confessing their sin now. They're actually owning it and saying, it's our fault. 
And they're acknowledging now we see for the first time the righteousness and the rightness of their chastening. What's happening? They're becoming, they were huge in their own eyes. Remember what, what really got under their skin, what really upset them so much about Joseph was when he said what? You're going to do what? You're going to bow down before me. Why, you rotten little pipsqueak, how dare you? I will never bow before you. I certainly don't bow before any man. I barely bow before father. Maybe I give him a nod of the head. But my back never changes its actual inclination. I'm not bowing to you. Notice here, they began by throwing themselves before the, the man that they're eventually going to find out was their brother. He was right. But they were so large in their own eyes when all of this started. And now they've become very small. I hope you see this, that this is a profoundly different group of men than the ones who lied to and then murdered all the men of a city, who slept with their father's concubine, who got up to all kinds of evil activity while shepherding, who plotted to murder their brother and then sold him into slavery, who went to Canaanite religious festivals, who slept with prostitutes, who defrauded their daughters-in-law, and then had the gall to be right, self-righteous when the daughters-in-law turned out to be pregnant, and so on. These are men now who have been broken of that self-righteousness that stops you from approaching God and being humble and being surrendered to his spirit and useful in his service. God has been working on them and we shall see now, as Joseph sees, the difference that God's work in their lives has caused. He's made them a loving family. They love one another now. And that through this long process of chastening let me give you an example of how this works in our own lives. I was, and, and, and not to, and this is an important application. As I said, so often we push back against God's chastening. However, it's coming and saying, no, no more. I don't want any of this. Stop. We cry out. It's not fair, that kind of thing. But God's chastening is necessary. It was necessary to break them. And so often it's necessary to break us. I was working on a, a, a pastoral uh, issue and I, I asked uh, one particular person I was working with in that um, how I could have done better. What should I have done that I didn't do? And um, the person gave a very good answer. They said, don't be so quick, I'm paraphrasing here, to pour the oil of grace in before law and that sense of guilt and conviction have done their work, have broken down the pride and the arrogance that people have, and their unwillingness to admit their sins. I, I mean, we see that again and again in Scripture, don't we? We see Peter, for instance, after he betrays Christ, does Christ immediately run across the courtyard and say, Peter, Peter, don't worry, you're forgiven. Everything's okay, man. No, the Peter who had said, what did he said before? He'd said, although all other men leave you, I never will. Not me. Not Peter. Uh -uh. Never going to happen. These guys, <clears throat> worthless. But me, I got your back to the very end. Little girl, aren't you one of his followers? <gasps> no! I don't even know him! What had to happen? He had to be shown how small he really was. 
without Christ. He needed to go through that humbling process. And it wasn't until the Sea of Galilee and Jesus coming to him, and then once again bringing his sin before him. Peter, do you love me? Three times. And he's broken at the very end of it, isn't he? He realizes three times he asked me, three times I was asked. I said, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. How dare you, I don't know him. <laughs> I swore at people. And Jesus restores him, feed my sheep, but he has to go through that period of being broken down in order to be really useful to Christ later on. We see that in Peter's preaching then later on. What does he do when he's talking to the men of Jerusalem about the gospel in Christ? He, he talks about what God was doing the whole time. And then he ends, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter loaded it on thick. God did send you the Messiah you were looking for. You killed him. You took him with unrighteous hands. Some of you guys right here, and you nailed him to the tree. And so they're cut to the heart. I needed to be cut to the heart before I could come to Christ. We all do. We need to be lowered. And we need to remember that we have a loving father. And a loving father will chasten us. Hebrews tells us, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Why is he doing that? To make us better and ultimately to make us more like his son, Jesus. That's the process he was following in Genesis. That's why when before I didn't understand what was happening now, after 52 years of going around the sun, I see more why it was so necessary that this had to happen. My prayer is that you understand why it's necessary in your own lives and that you don't kick against the goads, that you don't force it away and say, no, no more. I'm just going to go back to sin. But rather that you understand that these things are to move you in the direction of righteousness so that you will become more Christ-like. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, we do thank you that you use chastening in the, in the lives of your children to show them their sin and then to break them down, to humble them so that they can be built up into something glorious for your cause. Remind us, O oh Lord, that when you do chasten us, it's not out of hatred, it's out of love, and that your desire is that we would be restored and made much better. O oh Lord, help us, therefore, to endure chastening gladly and to know that ultimately all of these things will work for our good.